welcome to the second edition of the podcast, uh, edition of episode issue, the second electrical publication, the second electrical publication of the phonocast. That's um, that voice I like. It's the voice of the fat 19th century gentleman. It probably never existed in real life, but it's used a lot in Dickens adaptations and, and BBC period dramas. There's a guy with a big belly in big trousers. <laughs> I was most entranced at the introduction that season of Miss Pennywhistle upon our circle. <laughs> most invigorating company and a creature of rare thought and conversation with a complexion as fair as that of Miss Sandy. No one spoke like that. The second podgram, and you are almost welcome to it. Not, you are almost, you are not, you are all most you are all most welcome. You are not, not almost welcome. Not, you are all most welcome. Not all, I don't think it's possible to be almost welcome to anything unless um, you were the, the guest of honour at a big function and everyone was looking forward to you arriving and then you turned up with toss written on your forehead. Then perhaps you would be almost welcome. Um, and thank you for listening to the second one. Thank you for downloading it and using the internet for what it's for which is whittling away the hours, isn't it, on BBC Sport and Twitter and Facebook and podcasts. The rest of the internet's for idiots, isn't it? <laughs> how, how proud Mr Berners-Lee was when he observed the young folk typing lol into YouTube after viewing a video of a young gentleman singeing his testicles. <laughs> no, there's, there's only uh, a few websites that I go to. I'll admit, I don't use the internet widely. I'm, I'm hooked on Wikipedia, and I was browsing it the other day I was looking at films and how much money they'd taken I was what I was doing is I was trying to find the most profitable film ever and so I was looking I could have just googled that but I I wanted to go through all the big films I, I, I pretend I was a researcher for somebody right and so I was looking at the Star Wars entry and reading through the synopsis and and there there was a link to Death Star. You know when you can get links in Wikipedia, so it said something about the Death Star, and then the Death Star was in blue, and you click on it, and it goes to a separate um, whole entry about the Death Star itself. And that's what I like, um, not so much about the internet or, or Wikipedia. I like the fact that somebody has bothered putting a whole lengthy entry in about the Death Star. Um, a most industrious young sir had penned an entire work to its honour. And it made me laugh, though, that the, the entry on the Death Star, go and have a look, because I printed it for the sake of this, and it reads, right, in the Death Star bit, it says, <clears throat> The Death Star is a fictional moonside space station and superweapon appearing in the Star Wars movies. And this is, well, that's good, because he's recognised that the Death Star is fictional. It says the Death Star is a fictional moon space, which he recognises it's fictional. But then that makes his subsequent statements rather more confusing because it goes on. It says the first Death Star had a crew of 265,675, as well as 52,276 gunners. And there's lots of others, like 607,000 troops, 30,984 stormtroopers, 42,700 troops ship support staff, 108,216 pilots and support crew. So on the one hand, the Death Star didn't exist, but on the other hand, everyone's got jobs. 
So this is what the government should do, because unemployment's reasonably high at the moment, isn't it? They could just create a huge moon-sized space weapon, and everyone's sorted. It doesn't matter that it doesn't actually exist, right? Why does it say, as well, it had a crew of 265,000? It had a... It's in the past... Oh, probably because it got destroyed. But it got destroyed in, the, in a film, and he knows that. I don't, right, and before you say, how do you know it was him, how do you know it was a he who wrote this entry about the Death Star on Wikipedia? Look, by saying it was, and it was, I'm doing women a service. Women aren't stupid enough to cook up these numbers. They're not deluded enough. And th the numbers are so specific. S 607,360 troops. Did people never leave the death? Did they never go on holiday? Were there not births and deaths? The numbers must have changed. It's, it's too specific. And the numbers were never mentioned in the films. There was never a, a scene with, um... Lord Vader, it seems that 20 of our stormtroopers have been killed, leaving us now with 30,964. <sighs> and how many ship support staff? 42,782. That figure hasn't changed, Lord Vader. There was never any dialogue that produced these numbers. These are invented facts by someone who knows the Death Star is entirely fictional. It goes on, it says, um, it says, its hangars contain assault shuttles, blast boats, strike cruisers, land vehicles, support ships, and, very specific, 7,293 TIE fighters. They were, TIE fighters were the, the, the little jets, the little spaceships that they flew around in. But there's 7,000 of them, and he's already pointed out there was 180,000 pilots. That's 25 pilots I worked out in my own time at home by myself. That's 25 pilots per TIE fighter. It must have been quite difficult to know what to do all day on the Death Star because we've all, we've all been in jobs where we've had too little to do, you know, when you have to look busy. And I think this was probably the, the major problem for the TIE fighter pilot with Vader looking at you. Pilot. Yes, Lord Vader. What are you doing? With that magazine, what are you doing? I'm just, uh, I'm just, I'm getting ready. I'm, I'm looking. I'm just getting ready for. The... Why aren't you in your Tie Fighter? Tie, it's getting fixed, Lord Vader. The Death Star's overstaffed. Middle management have screwed up. They've, they've kept employing people instead of training people. That's what's happened. It's about numbers. It's government numbers. And um, there, there are four times as many pilots as there are support staff. Why did everyone want to be a pilot? This is the most dangerous job. I'd have been support staff. But, um, the best Death Star fact. This is the last fact from Wikipedia. It says, various sources state that the first Death Star has a diameter between 120 and 160 kilometres. Various sources. <laughs> who are the sources? Who are the, who are the witnesses to the Death Star? I've see, I seen it. I've seen the Death Star fly right over this farm. It were 120 kilometres across. It were 160 kilometres. Well, she reckons 160, but I'll stick with 120. Put it this way. Death Star was between 120 and 160 kilometres. So, um, at the bottom of the Wikipedia page, you know there are often links to other sites that are relevant. Um, there's one, Wikipedia which is, this exists, and it's a whole digital encyclopedia like uh, Wikipedia, but it's just for Star Wars. And so, couldn't resist this, so I went to the Star Wars bit, and this separate printout, um, the Wikipedia, so this is no longer Wikipedia, Wikipedia, it says, 
The first Death Star was 160 kilometers in diameter. I told you what! Whilst the second Death Star was 900 kilometers in diameter. And I, I know it's easy to make fun of nerds, which is why we do it. Mm. Yeah, well done, Stan, for making fun of nerds, people that sit in front of their computers all day long, while you yourself are just sitting in front of a computer by yourself doing this. Do you not see the irony of what you're... Shut up, you're not my real dad. But um, on, at least on the Wikipedia one, the, the Wikipedia entry points out that the Death Star is fictional. Not on Wikipedia, it doesn't. It says... Uh, this is a separate printout. It says, Since service on board the Death Star was a long-term affair, the station maintained a number of civilian amenities to make the time aboard a deep space station more comfortable. Parks, shopping centres, recreation areas and taverns, such as the Hard Heart Cantina, could be found in general sectors of the station. The Hard Heart Cantina. Oh, I'd love to go with a Hard Heart Cantina, but we can't because it's not real. It's, it's a most, it's a most fanciful notion. And the mall, the Death Star's got a mall, that, and that's official. That's not people making fun of the Death Star or anything. That's from a, a Star Wars fan on Wikipedia. It's got a mall. And what did you buy in the Death Star mall? Was there a, um, the Stormtrooper goes home, I suppose. He must go back to his own planet after a year or two. He'd have gifts from the mall. His family isn't, his wife isn't impressed. Oh, it's a Death Star pen. No, no, it's not just, a, it's not any old Death Star pen, though, because, look, if you turn it upside down, look, see, the Death Star floats through the stars. Look, and the kids, here are kids. I've got, you know, I've been to the mall. I've, look, at that will suit you. It's a T-shirt, Dad. Yeah, I know, but look what it says. It's funny. I... My dad went to work on the Death Star and all I got was this lousy... What a disappointing joke to end on. That's disappointing. Now, I must say that life here at Bromsgrove for my sister and I is generally... It's a very happy one. Oh, it is. We're so lucky because we really are in a handsome spot. Growing up here, it was just heaven, really, it was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're the 13th generation of our family to live here, and I'd consider myself damned lucky if I were to be pushing up daisies down in the old family plot when my time comes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I can never leave Bromsgrove. We do winter in Antigua, but my heart will always be here. It's just some of our friends. So you mustn't speak out of turn, Hugo. Oh, no, but dash it, Philippa. Some of them have become impossible. Oh, it's really the sons and daughters of Heather that are the problem. Yeah, no, that's right. It's the new generation. The ones that keep apartments in London. I mean, they get invited to a country house like Bromsgrove, and they can be absolutely beastly to us. Yeah, it's true, it's true. That dinner we held with the Dwight Morgans last weekend. Oh, perfect example in point. Now, our family have known the Dwight Morgans for the best part of 300 years. Um, there are letters in the library to prove that, but they're boys, Frankie and Giles. Oh, they really can be very boring. Their family representatives got in touch with us about a fortnight back, saying that both the boys were very keen golfers. Now, our grandfather had a decent little nine-holer built on the grounds here in the, in the 50s, 
and it's matured into a very playable little course, hasn't it? Oh, yes, yes. Many friends enjoy coming over to stay and playing the odd round. And we host a village open every year where locals from the area can come up and have a day out. It's, it's giving something back, really. Yeah. So we write to the Dwight Morgans with an invitation for the weekend. Reluctantly, I might add, because, well, I didn't enjoy Frankie and Giles' company when I met them at Epsom. But nonetheless, they had a gracious invitation for dinner on the Friday, golf on the Saturday, sport on the Sunday. Yet, they arrive late. We expressly said for seven. We were expecting to eat at eight. They turned up closer to nine. And, yeah, and I, I might add, they turned up half-cut. Threw their bags and clubs down in the hall, dressed like they'd been in the pub all day. And, of course, we were all in evening wear for dinner. I don't think we've had a single dinner at Bronsgrove where we haven't dressed in going on 500 years. Well, quite right, too. So I say to the boys, I say, Right-o, chaps, why don't you both pop upstairs and get dressed? We'll be eating as soon as you're ready. And the look they gave you. The look! They just, well, they just both started laughing. You bloody pobs, they said. I don't, but pobs. Pobs. Well, it, it means poverty, doesn't it? You bloody pobs, they said. What was that word he used? Bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie. You don't dress for dinner, you bloody pov. It was you was shouting in my face. Are you going to show us your new plasma telly, pov? I, I, I had absolutely no idea what they were going on about. No, it was absolutely bewildering. Oh, was it? Got any new games for your PlayStation, you bloody pov? I must say, I had absolutely no idea what that is. No, I mean, and, and all right, the Dwight Morgans do have a sensational amount of coins splashing around in the old trouser, but to call us pobs... Well, no, no, look, it's vulgar to talk about money. Absolutely. Daddy would hate us for it. He would. He would. But from farm rent alone, we must get seven figures annually. Oh, Hugo, please. They come down here with their London hair flopping about like goodness knows what, and actually probably more like eight figures annually from rent. Hugo, that's enough. And we're right. we might not be in the same bracket as the Dwight Morgans. I mean, they are, I think, eight eighth richest family in the United Kingdom, but even so... To call us pods. Well, it's entirely unfair, isn't it? Isn't it? No, no, it is. Entirely unfair. Well, it is. I'm sure it is. It is. Don't worry. Bloody Dwight Morgan. I was thinking about the code and conduct for these podcasts before I started, trying to think of the ins and outs and the, the standard of practice and what have you. And one thing I set upon is that I'll try and keep the swearing down and in particular keep the blasphemy down. And it's not because I'm religious. Oh, why is it then, Stan? Is it because you're trying to emulate an actual radio show so someone at BBC Six Music will give you one of your own, probably on Sunday nights about 9pm to midnight? No, that isn't the reason. You don't know me. You're not my real dad. So just shut up. No, the reason is that although I enjoy a good swear and a good blaspheme and I think that the right curse at the right time still shows off the English language at its most powerful and fierce, I also think that it's too commonplace and it's too easy to fall back on. But mainly I was thinking that even as an agnostic, which is, you know, it's like an atheist, isn't it? I, I would say atheist, but agnostic is like a cop-out atheist. It means... It means you don't really believe in God and you laugh in the face of organised religion and all that. But nonetheless, you just about accommodate the possibility of some sort of higher presence, the possibility of it. You don't believe in it, but you acknowledge that there's so much we don't understand that even if you back science all the way, there is perhaps something hallowed behind the inexplicable, you know. And it's, it's a cop-out being agnostic because let's say 
when you do die and whoops there you are in front of St Peter and you feel like a right mug and he goes you're an atheist so even though he probably doesn't sound he probably sounds far more um, uh, authoritative he goes you're an atheist so even though you've been kind and you've been honest your whole life and helped drowning wasps out of swimming pools you still can't come in to heaven you can go ah no I'm agnostic so even though I was a doubting Thomas, I believed in the possibility of something. And now I can see that something does exist. So I was right, wasn't I? In your angelic face. Where do I put my hat, etc. Right. So I was thinking, regards blasphemy, that as an, as an agnostic, if you go along with the idea of Jesus and God being omnipotent, that, that as they say, they're everywhere, don't they? They see everything, they hear everything. Um, if they hear and see everything that anyone does at any time, then blasphemy just be, blasphemy must just be really annoying. I don't think God would be offended by it. He's heard it all before, but it would just be irritating. You know, he's trying to get on with stuff and someone down on earth goes, oh God, and God has to look down. He has to find that person and the person continues, going, oh God, where are my keys? And God, oh God, oh God's like, oh, your keys? Your keys, do you mean the keys to your heart and how you might unlock it so as to let me in? No, you mean your car keys, don't you? Oh, I thought it might have been an emergency then. Where was I? Then someone down there goes, oh, for the love of God, no! And God scampers over to the side of the workshop and he looks down at earth and there's just some bloke going, why can't I finish this level? I should never have got Tetris from my iPhone. Oh, God, why? And so there's hundreds of thousands of people using his name in vain all the time. It must be exasperating. It must be like, you know, when you think you've heard someone call your name on the street, so you look around, but it isn't you. They're talking to someone else. And being God, it must be like if your name's Susan, for example, just walking around and getting on with your everyday life, but with in your head, Susan, 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 oh, Susan, 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 Susan. And you're in the car, in the car trying to find some coffee. Susan, 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 oh, Susan, why? And you, 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 you crack up. Um, oh, what? I can't find the button for my shirt, Susan. So a billion times a day more than a billion times five billion times a day god must get his name checked and this is why tragedies happen it's that argument isn't it you know if god exists how how come so many bad things uh, are allowed to happen it's because he's distracted he you know he's walking down a street the theory a theolo theological street with a billion people calling his name for some petty triviality tsunamis could be avoided if it weren't for people like kelvin in norwich going oh god no oh god i forgot to turn the bath off and now there's water everywhere god's looking at him going you've you've forgotten to Turn the... Oh, no, Thailand! You know, he's... Oh, hang on. Oh, hang on. You've forgotten to turn the bath off. Well, thanks to you, Thailand's gone. You left a tap on, bathroom flooded. You call a plumber. Water's everywhere, is there? How do you think I feel? So, you know, God must get home of a, an evening and he, he's in a foul mood. He's had a terrible day and he sat at the dinner table with Jesus and Mary and Jesus. All right, Dad, you look tired. How's the second book coming? Badly. 
Can't get it done. Idiots calling me up for insignificant little problems. Can't hear a single prayer. I think Jesus might be quite affronted by that, though. I think he'd go, oh, you don't, don't, you come at me with that. I get it too, Dad. I get it. It's all Jesus this and Jesus Christ. And some people, some people are so damn rude, Dad. It's Jesus effing Christ, they say, but they don't say effing. They say the actual word, Dad. Imagine having a swear word as part of your actual name. That's not what I died for. Jesus H. Christ, I get you know how embarrassed I am about my middle name being Herbert? It's just one long nightmare, Dad. God's not having that. He does. He, you don't get it as bad as me. Have you heard the woman folk in Britain and North America recently? Everything's, oh my God, oh my God, he's so cute, oh my God. They're even abbreviating it now. They just write OMG. But I'm omnipotent, so I still hear it. Oh my God, I just totally blinked and stuff. I don't care if they blink, son. I don't care. I know I should because they're all my children, but I don't care. And then Mary comes in and says, you two stop fighting. You don't understand, Mum. They're using our name in vain on Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is man talk, love. We're talking about our names being used in vain. And Mary's not having that. She's like, oh, you don't think, you think I don't suffer from that. Have you heard them in Ireland? Jesus, Mary, Mother of God. It's all I hear. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back. Now, our next act down here at the Salford Side Splitter was on last week, you might remember him, and he absolutely took the roof off the place. Well, you know what they say about lads from Old Trafford, you can't trust them with anything. <laughs> um, I'm only joking, I'm only joking, there's a, there's a few in, I see, a few in. No, he went down a storm, so please, welcome back, the comedy stylings of Monacy! Hello, yes, hello, thank you. So, in the past, um, my life never really got started at any stage, <laughs> um, which I know you don't believe, but it's true. So therefore, it never really got stopped at any stage. <laughs> but, obviously, the past is what makes any person. And I was never young. <laughs> the idea of uh, cars and girls and Saturday nights and a bottle of wine... To me, these things were just morbid. And I was always attracted to people with the same problems as me. Which doesn't help when they're all dead. <laughs> so, um, who here likes pop music? Good, yes, good. But pop music is slowly being laid to rest in every conceivable way and the ashes are already about us if we could but notice <laughs> I've never intended to be controversial but it's very easy to be controversial in pop music because nobody ever is <laughs> it's true it's true and I do maintain that if your hair is wrong, your entire life is wrong. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You've been very kind. Thank you for the past. <laughs> Pubs. I've, I've heard so many people say, oh, the problem with pubs nowadays is it's all loud music and Sky TV and Alka Pops and fruit machines and all this carry on and you can't hear yourself think and it's... No, the problem with pubs, the reason that they're all closing down is not Sky TV or music, it's because of the possibility 
of Morris dancers. I don't think there's a worse feeling in the world than when you're in the pub enjoying yourself, having a quiet pint, and a group of Morris dancers walk in. Maybe the feeling of getting shot is worse. I don't know, but I reckon the two feelings are equally uncomfortable and deflating. There's probably, there's probably more a feeling of shock with getting shot because it happens to most of us very rarely and we're unfamiliar with it. But the two sensations must be comparable of a fashion because when you get shot, you'd think, oh, God, I've been shot. This is one of the worst things that could possibly happen. I feel my life is draining away. I don't know what course of action to take, whether I should just shout or alert. But should I shout? Should I stay still? And it's the same when Morris dancers come into the pub. Because when a Morris dancer enters a room, everything must cease. You're not allowed to carry on with your conversations. You're not allowed to throw a dart or play a pull shot. No, because the holy man has walked in. This is how they like to think of themselves, as some sort of link to our pagan past. Oh, look, look, see the man who holds the key to so many secrets, the one with bells upon his hat. Let's bow down before him and sacrifice something so we too might find favour with the white witch. Um, the fictional, this fictional preposterous link with Arthur Pendragon and all of his lot is represented in the language that they use. Um, it's not real. This is the fiction. So a group of Morris dancers come into a pub uh, and the leader, who is... The leader is probably voted for by how many times they have Jeff in their name. Like, if someone was called Jeff, Harold, Jeff, Jeffbrook, they would automatically become the leader. The leader comes in at the head of the pack and you, you look down at your drink and you think, oh, no, the... Match is starting in seven minutes. And by the way, it doesn't matter if it's penalties in the World Cup final to this lot. It doesn't matter if the Prime Minister is on telly telling us we're at war with Norway. It doesn't matter. The Morris dancers are in. Telly off. Telly off. The blessed ones are here. Telly off. The leader will come in and he'll go, this, he'll go, hear ye, hear ye. No, we, no, we'll have more of a, a beer. Go, hear ye, hear ye. See, we, a group of dancers, we. And because they speak in this... Um, th this strange sort of medieval patois that has never existed at any point in history. It's just a language they've made up. They'd like you to think that their Jeff-style hobby is something that has been handed down from uh, one bunch of wizards to Cornish ancestors who wrote it on the walls of a cave and it was transcribed into Middle English by some elder in 1453. But it's not, no, it, it hasn't, it's nonsense. Thee must cast your eyes to see, we ring a bell upon our knee. And no one has ever spoken like that. Maybe a smackhead outside Shakespeare's house once, and or maybe just a drunk bloke outside Shakespeare's house once who got all his words in the wrong order, but they will fool you to, into believing they are speaking with the tongues of sanctified yesteryear. Let me tell you, let me get this straight. Morris dancing was not invented by the pagan Cornish 5,000 years ago. It was invented in Burton-upon-Trent in the 70s. And it was designed to give people called Jeff something to do when he saw that everyone had got into T-Rex. And, oh, we, we can't have long-haired types into Bowie and the New York Dolls and T-Rex, not here in Burton. Let, let's, let's, let's get some other blokes down and we'll clack some sticks around in the snug bar. Remind them of what being English is all about. And it's the, the dancing... If you're listening to this away from our petty shores in somewhere good, and you might not have seen Morris dancing, YouTube it, right? The most amazing thing is A, how simple it is, and B, how badly they do it. Like, 
compared to proper dance steps, it's basically crawling. If, if, if proper dance is the equivalent of walking, Morris dancing is crawling. And it, it's so noisy. Clack, clack, bells, 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 round in a circle. Clack, clack, clack. Jeff's in arms with Jeff. And round they turn. Clackety, clack, spackety, spack. And sometimes, oh, sometimes they get the swords out. Oh, the swords, the swords. This is supposed to make people think, oh, swords, they must be highly skilled. They must be highly skilled. We better stand back. They've got the swords out. No. Clack, clack, swords in front. Do a skip and point sword up. Touch the ends and dance around. One, two, dance right back. Have you ever, um, have you ever seen it when they, they make that sort of hexagon shape out of three swords put together. Or hexagon shape. Hexagon, probably a pagan sign. No, it's just a shape. Don't fall for it. It's just a, and then, then, having irritated you for a good 15 minutes, everyone, everything's stopped, the telly's off, they've annoyed you for 15 minutes, announcing each dance, and then Jeff stands there playing his, his squeeze box, and another Jeff, or Dennis, comes around to collect money. It, you have to pay. It's, it's like being paid to be spat on. You, where, and where does the money go, right? To charity? No, it doesn't go to charity. It goes to them, right? It, it goes to their pocket. So here comes Jeff, and he doesn't have a plate or anything like that or a cup. He's got a bird's nest. Got a little, put the money in the bird's nest, for we are men of the ancient forest. We ancient foresters three. And you, you feel you have to give. Don't. But you feel, you feel like you, 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 you're somehow putting two fingers up in the face of England, as, as if you're being unpatriotic by not giving to Jeff and the Jeffsters. For, uh, for, you feel unpatriotic for not giving to Jeff, the bloke that's just landmined your whole afternoon down the pub. Well, for one thing... I'm not that patriotic. I'm a man of the wider world, not pigeonholed by flag or compass. But two, as we've discovered, they do not represent England at all. Although T-Rex do. grandson and only living relative of John Merrick, the Elephant Man, and find out how his quest for romance is getting along. Now, last week, didn't, it didn't go quite to plan after Alan described his meeting in Holborn with the wanton strumpet that was Adriana, the hussy, and yet I'm glad to say that he joins us on the line again tonight. Good evening, Alan. <laughs> Good evening, Stanley. Glad to hear you're feeling a bit brighter. Well, I can't apologise enough for slightly losing my self-possession last week. <laughs> Something must have got in my eye. Well, it was, it was powerful, powerful stuff, but you've bounced back. Oh, yes, I'm still standing better than I ever did. Looking like a true survivor, feeling like a little kid. <laughs> Good show. And Adriana, she wasn't right for you anyway. Oh, well, I know that now, yes. Now that I've met Clarissa. Oh, the wonderful Clarissa. Oh, goodness me, this sounds promising. So, before we get on to the date itself, yes. 
I thought we might talk a bit more about the process of finding these dates. I mean, how do you go about setting them up in the first place? Oh, well, it's all changed enormously with the advent of the internet, of course. And when I started out, you literally went through an organisation. You would fill in a form and send it off and they would process it and for a monthly subscription they would put you in touch with fellow members. But that's the same process in principle as the internet dating sites, isn't it? Well, not really, because the benefit of the internet is that you can generally browse people's profiles and look at photographs and what have you, read about their interests, which is infinitely superior to the old method of the agency because at the best agencies, they had the habit of telling you that you had to go in for an interview first. And that was, was that a bad thing? Oh, I see. Well, I would go in and sit down for the interview and they would write words or ring words or, or, or tick boxes on their form, but you were never allowed to see what they were writing, and then I'd go off home, and they'd arrange a date for me, but the people that turned up, well, um, how can I put this delicately, were not as easy on the eye as I had hoped. Because they'd match them up with yeah. Well, I think the only explanation is that I had been in the dating game for a long time without success, and I dare say these women had too, and so perhaps they thought we had some common ground on that front. So, as I say, the various internet sites are far better. And so, you have your profile up there on these sites? That's right, yes. And what do you generally put? I mean, how do you describe yourself? Oh, well, I put, um, single male, Whitechapel area, looking for like-minded ladies for long-term romance. Um, likes books and reading. Mills and Boone books. That's right. Yeah, but don't put that. No, I don't. I just put general fiction. Um, G-S-O-H. Got sack on head? Good sense of humour. That stands for um, five foot ten to six foot three. What? Well, depending on which bit of me they're looking at, you see. And then, just to separate myself from the pack, I put a little poem at the end. Oh, well, care to share? Oh, goodness. Well, um, all right. Roses are red, violets are blue. Please don't do that thing of 
leaving the restaurant when you said you were just going to the loo. Oh, okay. It's a bit fatalistic, maybe. Oh, no, no. It's dating humour amongst the dating community. We've all had it happen from time to time. And is there a, a picture or something on your profile? No, you, you don't have to use an image of yourself. Many people don't. In fact, I prefer to arrange dates with ladies who don't display their picture. It's quite the thing to do. And of course, it adds the suspense when you're waiting for your date. So you just put a picture up of something else. Something that reflects your character, perhaps, like a racing car or a hamster, for example. And what's yours? I've got a picture of an old candle flickering away in the darkness, you know, symbolising light in the wilderness. Well, it's very romantic, too, so... Talking of romance, this week's date, Alan, where did it where did it all happen? It was at a pub called the Jolly Butcher in Stoke Newington. It's just on Stoke Newington High Street. Oh, so in, in a, a pub, not a restaurant. A pub that serves food, yes. This is very common nowadays. Some women consider a restaurant to be a bit too formal and constrictive for a first date, and so they would prefer the more casual nature of the pub, many of which do excellent food. And what time did you arrange to meet? At half past nine. It was a later than normal rendezvous, because she said she goes to the gym every Saturday at six until eight, which is a very good sign, very healthy. Half past nine, okay. And what time did you get there? About quarter past five. To steady the old nerves and get in situ, yeah. So a few glasses of wine? Yes. How many? Twelve. Right. So then, at half nine, she arrives? Very punctual, yes, at 9.34. But of course, I'm in a bit of a flap, because this is a very popular pub by this time of night, and it was very crowded, people standing in between the tables, and the, the music was quite loud, which I don't prefer on the dates, because it makes conversation tricky. But you saw her come in. So hang on, is this one of the is she one of the ones that puts a photo on her profile? No, she just had a picture of a sunny field in the countryside. So how did you know what she was gonna look like? Oh, Stanley, Stanley, you've got a lot to learn about the dating world. One of the things you agree on is to carry a tell. So it was arranged that she would be carrying a copy of the Financial Times, you see. Because if you say the Mirror or the Times, there's a chance you'd get the wrong person. Because these papers are too ubiquitous. 
So, a girl entered with a copy of the Financial Times. Yes, Clarissa. Oh, Clarissa. She was about five foot six, dark skin, a waterfall of satin black hair cascading down her back. She wore minimal makeup, but her lipstick was a wonderfully unusual bluey mauve colour, and then a slender neck decorated with the simplest of silver chains, then a casual but perfectly fitted red and navy jersey and jeans, black heel boots, size four. She was quite the most divine creature I've ever had the pleasure of laying eyes on. And, and let's set the scene. The pub, it's quite busy and noisy, isn't it? Yes, and... Unlike last week, there was no waiter to help her find me, so she stood in the doorway looking around, and because of the noise, I leapt to my feet and waved my arms around and shouted, Clarissa, Clarissa, it's me, it's Alan! And she glanced over, and then... A strange expression, like a glazed look, came over her face, maybe as if she'd been shot with a poison dart, and she fell onto the floor when two men helped her up. And I started to run over to help too. After all, she was my date. And I was shouting, Clarissa, Clarissa, it's me. But she ran out of the door as I got to it. And one of the men pushed me backwards. And I left it on the floor. And everybody stood around me. And the men were laughing. It's not fair. I I never even got a chance to say hello. I've got so much to give. Well, there we are. That was the second edition of Alan's Dates. Why not join us next week when we'll rejoin Alan and find out how his quest for love is going. That's right, isn't it, Alan? This electrical podcast was written, performed,